Yeah, I appreciate that might have been slightly uh, difficult to follow in your Bibles or let's be honest, on the Bible app on your phone who actually brings a Bible to church these days. But I thought it was better that we did that than we spent about half of the morning reading the entire story of Noah, which takes three chapters in Genesis. So, um, yeah, as Simon said, today we start our new series called Boats, which might sound like quite a random title for a sermon series. When I was thinking about this, I thought, did anybody watch I'm Alan Partridge? You know, the bits in Alan Partridge where um, uh, at various points is a recurring joke about how he's desperate to get back on the TV and so he has all these ideas for TV shows that he says into a dictaphone. Um, Inner City Sumo, um, Youth Hosteling with Chris Eubank. I kind of felt like it was a bit like that with Steve and he's trying to come up with these ideas for the sermon series and he goes, idea for a sermon series, boats? Um, but anyway, here we are, four weeks on boats. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at four boats in the uh, Bible. We're going to look at the diameter, the circumference, the materials that they were made out of, how much they would be worth in today's... No, we're not really. Um, We're going to look at this. Uh, Noah built one, Jonah jumped from one, Peter abandoned one, and Paul nearly died on one. So I'm going to start today by looking at the first of these boats. I'm going to look at Noah, but before we do that, an important question that I finally have the answer for. The tortoise and the hare who actually wins? Now, lots of you will know this is a, a fable, uh, Aesop's fable. It was written about two and a half thousand years ago. And the story goes something like this, that the tortoise was annoyed that the hare was taunting him all the time about how slow he was and how fast the hare was. So he challenged him to a race. Uh, they have this race, and the hare, arrogant, sets off really quickly. He's so far ahead that he stops for a nap. He falls asleep. The tortoise, slow and steady, comes through and wins the race. But that's a fable. This... It's real life. So, before we get into it, uh, I'm going to ask you to put your hands up, please. Who thinks that the tortoise is going to win the real life race? Uh, Not that many of you. I'm going to go about 10%, maybe. Um, Who thinks the hare is going to win the real, actual race? Yeah, the vast majority of you. Now, when I was thinking about this beforehand, I thought, I wonder how the vote's going to go. Are we going to have the romantic, I believe in the story people in our church, or are we going to have the hard-nosed realists, the pragmatists, and it turns out you're the latter. Anyway, here we go. The tortoise actually wins after two and a half thousand years. Vindication at last. Um, now, some of you may be wondering why on earth is he talking about this. Others may be thinking, why didn't the hare get disqualified anyway for this blatant bit of illegal coaching during the race? But um, uh, given that the tortoise won in the end, I think that it's okay for us to move on from uh, that thing. So the answer, as I'm sure that many of you would have worked out about five minutes ago, is this, the importance 
of fables. Now, those of you who have been around this church for any length of time would probably have heard a few of us talk um, about Noah's Ark, and so I'm not going to repeat much of what we've previously said, but um, I do need to do a quick recap for those of us who haven't been around for quite so long. But if you want a longer explanation of what I'm about to say, I found an old talk of Steve's and stuck it on the website, so we've got the detail there. It's at oasiswaterloo.org slash flood. So in the past, we've talked a number of times about the fact that the Bible is a collection of books written by a collection of people in a collection of places over a great amount of time. And then it contains lots of different types of writing, different genres. It's not all historical narrative, as some churches would argue, but alongside some historical narrative, it's poetry. There's apocalyptic writing, there's prophecy, there are letters, there's law. So we've previously said here that the story of the flood isn't one of the parts of the Bible that's historical narrative. You might have heard us talk about this, the Epic of Gilgamesh. It was a myth written by the Babylonian people at a similar time to when the story of Noah was written by the Hebrew people. Many civilizations had a flood myth, a story about how their god or gods flooded the whole earth and killed all humanity. Now, the story of Noah is another one of those flood narratives. You would have heard us talk before about the differences between these flood narratives, like Gilgamesh's epic, and the flood narrative that we see in the Bible. In Gilgamesh, the gods are angry, and they take their punishment out on the people, wiping everyone off the earth to make a point and make themselves feel better. But the Bible's flood narrative is different We'll discuss this in a bit more depth later on, but it tells a progressive story of a God of love. Like I said, if you want to learn more about that, you can go to the website. But back to today, what are we, what are we going to talk about? The danger here is that once you come to terms with the fact that the flood is not fact, how did Noah actually round up two of every animal? How did he get them on the boat? What about the predators there? How did they live peaceably together on a boat for years? Once we come to terms with the fact that it isn't fact, we can sometimes write the whole thing off. It's a fairy story. It didn't really happen. We leave it for them to talk about in kids' church, but we don't discuss it here with the grown-ups. And that's the reason that I showed the tortoise and the hare video. Because even if stories aren't historical fact, they can still teach us a great truth. The story of the tortoise and the hare teaches us to keep going, to persevere. That people who are focused and stay on track do better in life with those with more ability who don't persevere. And that story has been around for two and a half thousand years. This is a lady called Dr. Carol Dweck. She's a professor of psychology at Stanford University. In 2006, she wrote a book called Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, where she talked about some research that she had done. She took 330 kids of 11 and 12 years old, and she sat them, gave them a test. Um, They sat down. They were given a 12-question test. The first eight questions were easy for people of their age that they could answer, and the final four questions were basically impossible for anyone of that age to answer. The kids flew through the first eight, and she was interested in how they tackled the last four. She said there was a percentage that just gave up, looked at them, said they're too hard, I'm done, I've finished the test. And then there was a percentage that struggled with them, that wrestled with them, 
that tried to get some kind of answer. She did a lot of psychological research around all this, and she coined these two phrases, fixed mindset and growth mindset. They've become quite popular over the last couple of years. A fixed mindset person is somebody who looks at what they do and says, that's it, I can't do it, it's too hard, the question is too hard, I'm moving on. And the growth mindset person is the person who learns, the person who struggles with it, the person who actually might get somewhere. It's become hugely important in educational theory. Most schools in this country will now talk about fixed mindset and growth mindset. They'll plan their curriculum to encourage students to develop a growth mindset. So we have this incredibly important piece of complex psychological research done by a decorated professor who's worked at Harvard, Yale, and Stanford universities. It underpins the curriculum development of loads of schools around the world. And when primary schools want to explain this concept to their pupils, how do they do that? They tell the story of the tortoise and the hare. The tortoise doesn't give up. The tortoise perseveres. The tortoise has a growth mindset. Even if they're not real, stories can still teach us great truths. So then, Noah. This story starts with the world in a bad place. It's Genesis chapter 6. It's only the sixth chapter of the Bible, and already things are starting to go wrong. Humans are described as wicked evil, corrupt, and filled with violence. Not exactly what God was going for. Now, early on in this story, we can see one of the things that separates this story from Gilgamesh's epic. In verse 6, it says, the Lord's heart was deeply troubled. Unlike in the Gilgamesh story, God doesn't destroy the world out of anger, in a fit of rage. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Creator was saddened that the world that He had created was moving further and further away from the vision that He had for it. What we have here is not an angry God punishing undeserving humans, but a grieving parent attempting to right the wrongs of creation. Into this story comes a man called Noah. Immediately we're told that he's a bit different to the rest. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah is really the first faithful person that we see in the Bible, and it's interesting that we introduced to Noah in a time when the world is um, when the world has gone so badly. It's like the writer is saying, however badly your world is going, righteousness is still possible. So we know the rest of the story. The Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody floody. And then the Lord told Noah to build him an arky arky. Then the animals came in, twosies, twosies. It rained and it poured for 40 daisies, daisies. The sun came out and dried up the landy landy, the end. Uh, when I was writing this talk, I wrote that bit and I thought, I really hope everyone knows that song from, <laughs> from when they were kids. Otherwise, I'm going to sound even more crazy than I normally do. Um, anyway, so back to it. Now, even though we are meant to be looking at Noah, before we get on to him, there's something really interesting in God's behavior through this story. The story ends with God saying that he will never again flood the earth. Whatever humanity does, God will not be swayed from his mission. He will stick by his world, whatever happens. 
a theologian, Walter Brueggemann, says, the flood has affected no change in humankind, but it has affected an irreversible change in God who now will approach his creation with an unlimited patience. God now approaches his creation with unlimited patience. It's what a good parent does. As most of you will know, we have two kids, and at my best, my patience is long. I take my time, but I'm not always like that. There are some days, days when the hours in work have been longer than the hours spent in bed, where my patience is slightly shorter than what God would hope. Um, Sarin, our older daughter, is currently learning Makaton uh, at school. Um, and for a while, she and her younger sister, Nia, went through a phase where when I asked them what they wanted for breakfast in the morning, they would respond in Makaton, which basically means using wildly over-enthusiastic hand signals to try and uh, tell me toast cereal uh, or porridge. Um, now, there are mornings when this is funny, and then there are other mornings when you've already had to ask them about 30 times to put their uniform on, and you've already asked them what they want for their breakfast in English about 14 times, when the wildly enthusiastic hand signals aren't really all that helpful, and you really, really just want them to say Weetabix instead of responding in Makaton. But fortunately for all of us, God appears to have a bit more patience than I do. But it's interesting to know that God appears to gain this patience through the process of the flood. There's a difference between the actions of God at the beginning of the story, who decides that the flood is necessary, and the actions of God at the end of the story, who says that never again, whatever humanity does, never again will he flood the earth. Theologians say that the turning point of the story, the turning point between the hostility of the first section and the commitment that God makes to humanity in the second section, is this verse, chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. God remembered Noah. Everyone here will have experienced the pain of being forgotten, of being left out. But the storyteller here is saying, God will remember you like he remembered Noah. As we know, this story ends with God making a covenant with humanity, a commitment to humanity and marking it with a rainbow. The rainbow being God's way of saying, I remember you. I remember you. I will always remember you. So this is a story of God's developing relationship with humanity, and it's also a story of a faithful and righteous man who commits to following God. Noah's faith is important. Before we even get to him being called by God to build a boat, we have to remember that Noah had stuck by his beliefs in a world in which everyone else had left their faith behind. In a world which Genesis describes as wicked, evil, corrupt, and filled with violence, Noah was a righteous man. He viewed his faith as demanding his whole life. For Noah, faith wasn't just about a set of rules to follow, follow the laws, sacrifice the right animals at the right time, go on living the rest of your life like you choose. Noah was willing to give his whole life, to be ridiculed by the people around him, to spend his time building an ark rather than just following the rules. 
I think we've all come across probably those Christians who view Christianity as not a list of things, as just a list of things that you shouldn't do. Just a list of rules. Do this, do that, and then you'll be all right. You can do what you want with the rest of your life as long as you stick to the rules. Do the right thing. When I lived in Swansea, um, me and a friend of mine used to volunteer at the local prison. We'd go into the prison for church services on a Sunday morning. Um, Sometimes we'd preach, sometimes we'd uh, lead the music. And um, there was a lady who used to go into the first of the services every Sunday morning into the prison. Um, And she'd play the organ for the first and last hymn. I think she must have been about, I don't know, 150, 160 years old at least. And... um, And she was an interesting character. Um, She told me the first time that I went into the prison, you know, 21 years old, clutching my guitar, that I wasn't allowed to play on the first and the last hymn because any more than one instrument constituted a performance and therefore was not worship. Okay, I said, so put my guitar back on, sat down, and um, then we started chatting about the service, and she said, I've chosen the first song, it is And Can It Be, And Can It Be being an old hymn with six verses, and I said, some of the words are quite complicated, aren't they, in, um, in And Can It Be, and also it's very long, do you think we could just maybe sing the first verse, the second verse, and the last verse, because, you know, otherwise we'll be here all day? No, because... The old hymn writers were directly inspired by God, and to leave out verses of a song is like leaving out verses of Scripture, which obviously is something else we've done this very morning. But anyway, so I just sat down, and um, she, she got up, she played the organ, and she, she sang the first, uh, all six verses. Now, she was somebody who based her life on following the rules, on sticking to what was right and what was true. Now, my friend Jez who used to go into the prison with me, he was very much a rule breaker. And when a rule follower and a rule breaker meet, something's going to go wrong. A couple of weeks later, Jez was in the prison, and at the end of the service, me and him had, had lunch together, and uh, I said, oh, how was this morning? And uh, he said, have you, um, have you ever had any issues with um, that lady who plays the organ in the first service? And I said, what happened? And he said, well, I went in, and, um, and I got my guitar out, and she said, you can't play in the first and the last song because any more than one instrument constitutes a performance. And then I suggested that we maybe drop some of the verses from the first old hymn that she recommended because it's really long, and the verses are quite complicated, and there's quite a lot of it, and it's not a very long service anyway. <laughs> and I nodded, and I laughed, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I, um, yeah, I had the same thing a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he said, what did you do? And I said, oh, well, I just sat there and waited for it to play the first song, and then I got up and, you know, all this. And uh, he said, ah. I said, what did you do? He said, oh, a bit different. (laughs) And uh, it turned out that um, Jez had uh, decided, as she started playing the first verse, just to get up and pick up his guitar and join in. What was she going to do? <laughs> Turns out nothing. So he thought, in for a penny, in for a pound. So as they got to the end of the second verse, he just shouted out, last verse, everybody! And they moved on to the last verse. Um, and Noah, Noah teaches us that our faith isn't about following rules. It isn't about just singing all six verses because they're there. Noah teaches us that our faith is not just about agreeing to a set of beliefs, It's a way of living. It demands our whole lives. 
We're called to a way of living. So the Noah story is important because of the way in which Noah responds to God. He doesn't respond by saying that doesn't fit with my strict rules. He doesn't respond by saying that would be too difficult. He doesn't respond by saying that wouldn't fit in with my schedule, it's too much. He doesn't respond by saying I can't do that, it would take my whole life. He responds by saying he's all in. At three times in those three chapters does it say that God commanded Noah to do something, and he did it. Chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. He was all in. So as we close then, the lesson for us this morning, I guess, is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? I think particularly at the beginning of the year when we're looking at resolutions and what we're going to change, what we're going to do differently, what we're going to strive for in this next year. I think the example of Noah is an important one for us. Noah didn't let his day-to-day life get in the way of fully following God. He wasn't worried by how it would impact his social standing. He was all in. Last week, Steve asked us this question, a line from a poem by Mary Oliver. What are you going to do? with your one wild and precious life. What are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? We all have one wild and precious life. Are we going to carry on with the day-to-day, follow the crowd, do what everybody else is doing? Or are we willing to give up everything we've known to find something more? Earlier when Steve was talking about uh, Channel 4 News coming to the food bank, he said, you only have influence if you've got skin in the game. It's no good standing on the sidelines. No good being that guy who complains about everything on the internet and then doesn't actually get up and do anything about it. We've got to be all in. It is great that Frank Field and Heidi Allen came here to look at the food bank and that we got an opportunity to say to the governing party, this is what you need to change about a policy that is negatively impacting millions of people. But that didn't happen overnight. It happened because eight years ago, before I was around, we set up a food bank. And every day for eight years, we've worked to try and feed the most hungry in this area. We've moved it from building to building. It's had to shut down. It's had to start up somewhere else. We've had loads of issues with it. But because we've done it, because we've worked on it every day for eight years, that's how you end up being able to say to somebody in government, what you need to do is this, and her picking up the phone and ringing somebody who can make that change. We have the opportunity to do this because we've got skin in the game, because so many people over the last eight years have been all in. What are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? One final quote to finish from another poet, Ted Hughes, from a letter that he wrote to his son. The only calibration that counts is how much heart people invest, how much they ignore their fears of being hurt, or caught out, or humiliated. And the only thing people regret is that they didn't live boldly enough, that they didn't invest enough heart, that they didn't love enough. The only thing people regret is that they didn't live boldly enough, that they didn't invest enough heart, 
that they didn't love enough. We only get one life. We've got to go at it wholeheartedly. We've got to take risks. This morning, we can write off the Noah story as a silly made-up tale, or we can embrace the lessons it teaches, and we can use it to inspire us to go out and live more boldly, invest more heart, love more. That is a story worth believing in.